him hear the song. We're in the book of Judges. Turn over to Judges, the sixth chapter. Good to have you here. I've got so much to try to get through tonight. I'm going to try to get through it. I know that Pastor Andrew, when I was gone, preached a little bit on Gideon. I have no idea what he said about Gideon. I'm going straight through the book of Judges. So if we overlap in sermons, then somebody needs to be listening. You understand how that works? And uh, if we don't overlap, then that's all right. Uh, Judges, the sixth chapter. This is where Gideon is first, in, first introduced to us. Uh, it's an interesting chapter. I would title this, if I had to give it, I would give it a couple of titles. One is A Mighty Man of Valor. I'm putting a question mark there, and you'll see why. Even though God declares that Gideon is a mighty man of valor. But I'm going to tell you that in this whole chapter, after God declares Gideon a mighty man of valor, he only does one thing that seems almost courageous, and that's blows his trumpet. And I'm not talking about when he blows his trumpet later on in the battle. That's not, this, is, this is not that story of Gideon. Uh, and other than that, Gideon really doesn't look to have a lot of valor in this, but God says... Gideon is a mighty man of valor. If I were really going to give it a title, though, on this chapter, it would be that we have a patient and long-suffering God. And you're going to see why as we look at this, Gideon chapter 6. Let's take a look at verse 1. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord delivered them. Don't, get, don't stop there, because it sounds like God did it did something that was wonderful, but the Lord delivered them into the hands of Midian for seven years. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to uh, glean from this chapter, to grow from it, to learn from it, and we'll thank you for all that you do in Jesus' name. Amen. It is amazing to me as we've looked at this, Judges, where, you know, Israel repents as God, you know, brings in judgment, Israel repents, and then God's gracious, and then Israel does evil again, and we've seen this over and over and over again. I don't know how many times in already just six chapters we've seen that Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord yet again, and so there we are again. Now, this is an amazing thing. First of all, I want to focus on what happens when sin comes in, how it literally robs us of God's blessing. Take a look at verse 2. It says, And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel, and because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made them dens, uh, which are in the mountains and caves and strongholds. And so it was when Israel had sown. Stop there a minute. When Israel had sown, what does that mean? Planted, all right? They're not making clothes, they're planting, all right? When Israel had sown, when Israel had gone out of the way and actually was was preparing to get some fruit. I want you to see what sin does when even though God's people sow, uh, that the Midianites came up and the Amalekites and the children of the east, even they came up against them and they encamped against them and destroyed the increase of the earth till thou come unto Gaza and left no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep nor ox nor ass, I mean, when we allow sin to come into our homes, when we allow sin to come into our churches, this is what happens. Even the very things that we've sown, the good things that we have expectation of, they're all taken away. That's what happens. This is a dangerous place for the children of Israel to be. They are literally starving spiritually. All of the good things have been eaten up, and there's nothing left for them. And uh, this is a result, a direct result of Israel doing evil in the sight of the Lord. And that's what sin's going to do to our families, gonna, what sin's going to do to us. We don't want that to happen. Uh, in verse, f- six, um, verse 5, I'm sorry, it says, They came up with their cattle and their tents, and they came as grasshoppers. Now, this is the enemy coming in. This is, again, what happens when we crack that door open and we let sin in. We crack that door open and we let the world in. The world doesn't just come in and say, oh, this will be nice. I'll sit with you for a while. No, the world comes in with its horde and completely takes over. And that's what you see like grasshoppers. I mean, there's more than you can possibly count. And uh, Israel is being overrun by the bad decision that they've made for the multitude. For both they and their camels were without number, and they entered uh, into the land to destroy it. And Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites. So that's the first thing I want us to see. Uh, This is before anything else ever happens with Gideon, that God's kind of setting the stage for 
uh, what Israel, what's happening in Israel. Now, Israel is about to ask God a question. And it's a question that all of us have asked God in some way or another at some time in our lives. Let's keep reading. We'll find out what that is. Verse uh, 7, it says, And it came to pass when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord because of the Midianites. Now, stop for a minute. Don't read. Don't cheat. Don't cheat. All right, so God's going to respond. The children of Israel are repenting. They're crying unto the Lord because of the Midianites. You know, they're, they're asking God for help. What is the first help God sends? Do you know the story? What is the first help God sends? It'll surprise you. Take a look at it. It's in verse 8. That the Lord sent a preacher, a prophet. You know what the prophet does? A prophet is just a, t- a preacher. You know, sometimes they foretell the future, but that's not all. Sometimes we think that a prophet is a future teller, but that's not really what a prophet is in the Old Testament. It's a preacher. And God sends a preacher. You know what the preacher does? The preacher simply reminds them of what they already know. Take a look at it. God sent a prophet unto the children of Israel, which said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you forth out of the house of bondage. And I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of the of all that oppressed you and drove them out from before you and gave you their land. And I said unto you, I am the Lord your God. Fear not the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell, for ye have not obeyed my voice. I mean, the first thing that God does, you'd think, you know, God's going to rescue the people. The first thing he does is not like send a great deliverer. The first thing he does is sends a preacher to remind them of what they already know. Let me remind you what God has done. Let me remind you of how God's already worked in your life and all the wonderful things that God did to bring you to this point. And yet, you've turned your back on me, God says. And, and I don't understand where this is going. God's talking to the children of Israel. And, uh, and so that's the first help that God gives. But now verse 11. Verse 11 begins this process. I want you to start counting in your mind. I want you to say, you, you count out loud, by the way. I'll, I'll let you do that. Every time God shows Gideon something great. Every time God shows Gideon a sign. And I want to I show you why I would say, a man of valor? Question mark. Because this is the Gideon that we're seeing, and this is that patient, long-suffering God, because I am more like Gideon than I am you know, anybody else in this story. And uh, I'm glad that God is patient and long-suffering. Take a look at it. It says in verse 11, And there came an angel of the Lord and sat under an oak tree, which is an Ophrah, uh, that pertained unto Joash, the Azriah, whatever, and, uh, and his son Gideon threshed wheat, wheat by the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And so Gideon's out there and he's threshing wheat and he's trying to hide it so that the enemy doesn't keep taking all their food what little food they've got get a little bit of wheat and they're trying to gather it up and hide it so they've got something to eat and an angel of the lord appears into gideon now this is a big deal would you agree i mean you can count you know pretty much count in the scripture the number of times that an angel lord appears in the people uh you could probably start naming people in the bible where it happened and we could probably just about accumulate everybody in the scripture for which this took place. Because there's not that many. This is a big deal. And uh, you would think that it would be enough, perhaps, for Gideon. But this angel of the Lord uh, begins to talk to Gideon. Verse uh, 13, uh, verse 12, I'm sorry. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him and said unto him, The Lord is with thee, thou, and there it is, mighty man of valor. Notice there's no question mark. This is a declaration from God's messenger. The Lord is with thee. Gideon, thou mighty man of valor. Now, Gideon, if you read the story, doesn't feel like a man of valor. He doesn't feel brave. He doesn't feel courageous. He doesn't feel prepared to enter into battle. Uh, He's struggling with this whole concept. And in fact, he's going to actually have some kind of a conversation with the angel about this. And Gideon said to him, oh my Lord, if, circle that right there, if, And start figuring out how many times Gideon is going to question the Lord. Now, I don't know. I I really don't know. I don't know exactly what an angel looks like. Uh, Have any of you seen an angel? (laughs) 
Nobody's going to admit to it. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, I'm aware that the Bible says, New Testament, by the way, New Testament, that New Testament Christians might entertain angels unaware, right, without us knowing it. Uh, I don't know if I've seen an angel. Uh, you know, I, I might have. Uh, I've, I can tell you honestly, I don't know that I've ever walked away from a circumstance in which I thought to myself that was an angel. But I've heard enough stories that after I hear the stories and the chills going up and down my back, I'm like, that might have been an angel. I'm, I'm aware that there are those kinds of stories out there. And I'm not going to argue that point. But I'm saying to you that Gideon knows this is an angel. And I'll prove that to you in a minute. Uh, he's going to have to have it proven to him. And I'll show you that in a minute. But here is Gideon. He's having this conversation. And he says, talking to an angel of God, if the Lord, if the Lord be with us. Now, here's the question that Gideon asks that all of us have asked at some point in our life. Look at what it says. Then why, why, he says, is all this befallen upon us? You ever heard anybody ask that? We, we've talked about this in my Sunday school class. You ever heard anybody ask this question? Why do bad things happen to good people? And I heard it said, that the better way to look at this is, why do good things happen to bad people? Because the truth is, we're all sinners. There's none of us good, right? Jesus himself said, there's none good, save God. None. And uh, so the better question would be, why do good things ever happen to bad people? But here's Gideon asking this age-old question. Then why, Lord, is this befallen? Can you tell me, please, you've read the story, why is this befalling Israel? Because Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, right? Because Israel turned their backs on God and started worshiping other gods. And this is why. And, uh, but here's Gideon. He's asking this question. If God be with us, then why is this befallen us? And where, is, where be all his miracles, which our fathers told us of, uh, saying, Did not God, uh, the Lord, bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord hath forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Verse 14, and the Lord looked upon him and said, go, now this is an amazing thing. He just called Gideon a man of valor. And now he's going to say to Gideon, go in thy might, and thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Look at the last phrase. Have I not sent thee, Gideon? Am I not with you? When Gideon is asking this question, God, why is this? I mean... Two verses ago, was God with Gideon? Is God still with Gideon? What has changed in, in the dynamic between God and Gideon? Nothing. Nothing. You know, God's always been with Gideon. When Gideon's asking the question, when Gideon's questioning and doubting, all this kind of stuff, it says, God's, God says, uh, and go in all this might, and I have, have not sent thee. Verse 15. And he said unto him, O my Lord, Wherewith shall I save Israel? Behold, my family is poor, and now he begins to argue this. You know, Lord, I can't do this. I'm just a farmer, et cetera, et cetera. Can you hear this conversation going on? Who is Gideon talking to? He's talking to an angel, right? And the angel is representative of the Lord. We can have this conversation as to whether or not it's a Christophany here or whatever it is, but he's calling him Lord, and Gideon's talking to him, and he says, you know, Lord, uh, wait a minute, you know, what about, uh, oh, my Lord, where were they? And notice that the Lord is capitalized in that phrase. Uh, where shall I save Israel? And my family's poor, etc., etc. Uh, and now look at verse 17. And he said unto him, if now, now, I told you to remember, start counting how many times in your mind, how many times Gideon is using the word if. Lord, if you're with us, why is this happening? Lord, if you're truly wanting me to do this, then, and he's going to make a request of the, I want to show you how patient God is with Israel. Aren't you glad? Have you ever been in one of these situations where, you know, you're under the thumb, so to speak. Uh, maybe it's because of evil being done. Maybe it's because of no fault of your own, so to, whatever. But here it is. You're facing this situation where God is allowing something in your life that you just don't understand. And Gideon is like, you know, having this conversation with God. And so he comes to that ne next if statement. He says, if now I have found grace in thy sight, then show me a sign. Well, hasn't Gideon already been shown a sign? What's the first sign? I pointed it out to you. What was it? 
First sign was a preacher. Thank you very much. Somebody caught it. What's the second sign? An angel. And now Gideon has the audacity to ask for a third sign. And so here he is. He says, Lord, uh, if this is true, then show me a sign that thou talkest with me. Depart not. I love this. Show me a sign that thou... How does the conversation take place? Show me a sign that thou talkest with me. Uh, hello? We're talking. Is that not sign enough? I mean, what does this guy want? You know, I'm talking to an angel of the Lord. Uh, Lord, show me a sign that it's really you and not just a figment of my imagination. I don't know what he's asking exactly, uh, but he says, show me a sign that thou talkest with me. And uh, so then he goes on, verse 18. Depart not hence. Gideon in essence says, you stay here. I'm going to go for a minute. Well, for a whatever, how long, however long it is. But please, you stay here. This is part of the sign. Now Gideon goes, look what he does in verse 18. Uh, I'm sorry, in verse uh, 19. And Gideon went in and made ready a kid. What's that? A goat. And leaven cakes. And an ephah of flour. And flesh, uh, the flesh he put in a basket. He goes and prepares a meal. How long does it take Gideon to do this? Yeah, this isn't like, I'll be right back, right? I mean, he's gone for however long he is. And here's God, patiently waiting. Do you see where I'm coming from in this chapter? Have you ever, have you ever done that to God? God, if you really want me to do this, wait right there. <laughs> if you're really serious about this, God, then would you just hold on for just a moment? And I just love this because... Never does God scold Gideon. Never does God, you know, tell Gideon, you know, man up, you shouldn't, why, why are you being so doubtful and, and so, no, God's just patient and kind of lets Gideon work through all of this. And so uh, we've already had three signs. He says, uh, he goes and gets this all made ready. In verse uh, 20, it says, and the angel of God said unto him, take the flesh um, of the, and the unleavened cakes and lay them on the rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. And I love this. It's just kind of like, you know, God's going to, he brings, I don't know, in my mind, I'm thinking he's prepared this as a meal, as an offering to the angel, right? And you know what's about to happen, if you remember the story. He's not going to eat it. The angel's going to show him yet another sign. And it's not the fleece. We haven't gotten to the fleece yet. Do you understand? Gideon keeps asking for more and more and more in the way of signs. And so uh, he says, lay it all out there. In verse 21, the angel of the Lord put forth the end of his staff and there that was in his hand and he touched the flesh and the unleavened cakes and there arose up a fire out of the rock and consumed the flesh. Well, I don't know about you, but if I saw fire just come up out of a rock, I might think, hmm, maybe God's actually talking to me. If I saw an angel, I might think, hmm, maybe God is actually talking to me. At what point? If God is so patient as for me to Put forth, you know, yet, would you just wait on me for just a moment? And he waits. And yet Gideon, by the way, is still not convinced. This is an amazing part of the story. Gideon's not convinced. The angel Lord puts forth and he burns this thing up. It's amazing. In verse 22, it says, and when Gideon circled the word, what is that next word? Verse 22. And when Gideon what? Can you, can you, I ask you, what does it mean for Gideon to perceive? He understood. What does Gideon understand? Ah, Gideon has no question that this is an angel from God, that God is doing the talking, that God has shown him all of the signs. There is no question Gideon understands. So we're, we're set to go, right? The next step is for Gideon to obey, right? <laughs> Do you see where I feel like Gideon sometimes? Have you ever been to that point where God just keeps showing you again and again and again? And, and you're like, and in your heart, you've perceived, you know. But what God is asking scares the living daylights out of you. And to take that next step, it's just scary. And aren't you so glad that at that moment, the God that we're dealing with is a patient, long-suffering, loving God? This is the God that Gideon has come face to face with, and it's a phenomenal story. And so Gideon perceives that it was an angel of the Lord. Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for because I have seen 
the angel of the Lord face to face, and the Lord said unto him, Peace be unto thee, fear not. This is the second time he's saying to the children of Israel earlier, fear not, saying to Gideon, don't be afraid, fear not. You're not going to die. You're not going to die. I mean, I can see all these things running around in Gideon's mind. I have insulted the angel of God a number of times already in this conversation. Can you see that happening? The insults coming in. If you are really, if you are really, you know, show me a sign. Prove it to me. And, uh, and man, he's just afraid he's going to die. Don't be afraid. You're not going to die. You might think everything's ready for Gideon, but it's not quite there. Now, the rest of the story, let me give you this real quickly. So God says to Gideon, I want you to start tearing down the altars to Baal. Now, this is a big deal. And Gideon, this mighty man of valor, he's so brave and valiant. You know what he does? He takes 10 of his men, of his servants, and he goes out by night. And the Bible literally says he went out by night because he was afraid of the men of the city. He went out by night and tore down the altar of Baal. He obeyed God, yet under the cover of darkness, so to speak, right? He's doing what God said, but he's still afraid. This is why, again, I'm telling you, I'm so much like Gideon. It's just crazy how often I find myself in this kind of circumstance where I'm asking God to prove again and again, and when I finally do obey, it's like, okay. And so Gideon goes out there in the cover of darkness and does this. And the next day, the men of the city get up, and they're like, who tore down the altar to Baal? They ought to die. They ought to die. And Gideon's dad, who, by the way, is a worshiper of Baal, but Gideon's dad actually steps up to the plate If in this story, just what we're reading, I was going to call someone a mighty man of valor, it would probably be Gideon's dad. Because Gideon's dad stands up to the men of the city and says, if Baal is really the God that you say he is, then why does he need you to defend him? Let Baal defend himself. Let Baal come along and destroy whatever man it was that tore down his altar. It's a great story. You need to read it. It's fantastic. You would think after seeing all of this and now seeing that you know, his dad steps up and kind of rescues him from the men of the city, that at this point, Gideon's ready, right? He's ready to be that mighty man of valor, right? Not quite. This is Gideon, this mighty man of valor. It's an amazing thing how that we keep seeing this over and over and over again. Go down, if you would, please, to uh, verse 15. Uh, I'm sorry, to verse, uh, what verse one I want to get to? Go down to verse uh, 30. Then the men of the city said unto Joash, Bring thy son, that he may die, because thou hast cast down the altar of Baal, because he hath cut down the grove that was by it. And Joash said unto all that stood stood against him, Will ye plead for Baal? That's that part of that story I was telling you about. And so now we get through all of that. We're there in uh, verse uh, 34. Look at this. Here's Gideon's moment of valor. The men of the city are gathering together to come down upon them. In verse 34, but the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon, and he blew a trumpet. That's what he did. He blew a trumpet. I don't understand it. I will tell you that the commentators, and I kind of agree with them, say that because the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, when he blew that trumpet, that the sound of that trumpet went beyond what it would have ever done apart from the Spirit of God. But the Bible does record this, that men for miles heard it and gathered themselves unto Gideon. Said, we're ready to go to battle with you, Gideon. All because Gideon blew this trumpet. His one moment of battle. Now here he is, he's surrounded by now an army. I mean, Gideon's got, all these men have gathered, you think Gideon's ready to go, right? No. Keep reading. Go down, if you would, to verse 36. And Gideon said unto God, what is the word? Oh, my. What is it going to take to convince this guy? I mean, we have seen God sent a preacher. We've seen God sent an angel. We've seen the angel burn up the thing. We've seen God protect him from the, the men of the city. We've seen him blow the trumpet and the men come running in. We've seen again and again and again God showing him a sign. God showing Gideon who he's, who he's dealing with and, and what's going on. And we get to the, you know, toward the end of this chapter, and Gideon still says, If thou wilt save Israel by mine hand, as thou hast said, behold, and now the story that you know. I'm going to put out a fleece. 
right? And he said, I'm going to put a fleece of wool in the floor. And if the dew be on the fleece only and the dry, and it be dry upon the earth beside, what does it say? Then I shall, now wait a minute, will he know? Then I, didn't he already know? Didn't it already say, and Gideon perceived? And now he says, Lord, if you'll do this one thing, then I'll know. I will know. So he says, uh, you know, then I will know, he says, that uh, thou wilt save Israel by mine hand, as thou hast said. Can I focus on that for a moment? Is it not enough that God has said it? Right? Hey, Christian, when God's word gives you a promise, is it not enough that God has said it? Really? Do we also have to see are we, how much like Gideon are we going to be? And I'm telling you, I'm like Gideon too. I mean, this is, this is what's so bad about it. And I'm so glad we have this God who's so patient. And I love this story because never one time does God scold Gideon. I'm telling you, if Gideon was my son, we'd be having a conversation in here. You know what I'm saying? At some point or another, I simply say, because I said so. Right? At some point you have that kind of... God is so patient with Gideon. And so he says... Lord, if you'll make just the fleece wet and the, the ground dry, then I'll know. And verse 38 says, and it was so. For he rose up early in the morrow and thrust the fleece together and wringed the dew out of the fleece, a bowl full of water. And Gideon said unto the Lord, let not thine anger be hot against me, and I will speak but this once. Let me prove, I pray thee. And he's going to set the fleece out again. You know the story. Let the fleece be dry and the ground be wet. And the same long-suffering, patient God says, Gideon, I'm going to keep proving to you that I am a God of my word, that I keep my promises, and that I am with you, Gideon. And God does it yet again. Pastor, I get asked this question often. Pastor, is it wrong to ask God for a fleece? Well, God doesn't scold Gideon. But let me ask you this question. Is it necessary to ask God for a fleece. What changed from the first thing that God said to Gideon to the last thing God says to Gideon? What changes? Does God's, does God's command change? Does God's expectation... Gideon, you're going to set Israel free. You know what he says at the end? Gideon, you're going to set Israel free. Nothing's changed. Gideon's... You know, confidence maybe has changed, and even that's going to be questionable when you read the rest of this story, right? This mighty man of valor keeps coming up against it where he's just questioning what God is really going to do. And yet God says, Gideon, you're a mighty man of valor. And God patiently works Gideon to this place of being willing to trust him. So what's God doing for you and I, Christian? I don't know where you're at. I really don't. But are you up against it? You know, are you sitting here and, and you're putting out your fleece and you're asking for a sign? And, you're at, and, and in your heart, you know, you're talking to God. That what God's expectation is not going to change from the beginning to the end. Just because God shows you a fleece, two fleeces, burns up a, a meal and, and sends a preacher and sends an angel. Nothing changes. God's expectation is still the same. Gideon. I'm going to use you to do a great job. So this loving, patient God is standing at your door, perhaps. Say, I'm going to use you. I'm just waiting for you to trust me to be with you. Heads bowed, eyes closed, please. Love them. John chapter 12, I'll stop there. So John chapter 12. Let's begin at verse 20, and uh, we'll work ourselves down to verse 26 and pray. And there came, I'm sorry, and there were certain Greeks among them, that came up to worship at the feast. The same, therefore, I'm sorry, the same came, therefore, to Philip, which was a Bethesda of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew, and again, Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. And Jesus answering them, saying, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. And but if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it, 
and he that hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto eternal life, unto life eternal. If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Father, I ask that you would help us today to uh, see Jesus. Help us to catch a glimpse of what uh, this uh, passage is teaching us and how we might exemplify uh, your son in our lives. And Father, we'll thank and praise you for all that you do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, so these Greeks come and they say, Sirs, we would see Jesus. Tell me something you know about the fact that the Bible says these are Greek people. So what are we talking about here? Tell me something you know about them. If they're Greek, then they are not saved, probably, people. If they're Greek, then they are not Jews. They're outsiders. They don't belong in this, uh, in this meeting. They're, you know, they, they, uh, the Jewish people uh, have separated themselves from the Greek people, and you know, they... Uh, anyone who's not a Jew in the Jewish tradition are dogs. You know, they're just not worthy of, uh, of, of any, anything, really, of any care and concern. And yet these Greek people come, and this is kind of the beginning of where we really clearly understand that God so loved the world, you know, and how Jesus is going to respond to these Greek people coming. He sirs, we would see Jesus. We would like to see Jesus. And I want to uh, really show you Jesus' response and Jesus' answer, what it is, how you and I to this day, because I believe that there's someone in your life right now that you work with, go to school with, someone that's a neighbor or a friend, maybe a family member, who is saying to you and I, hey, we'd like to see Jesus. And they're waiting for you and I to show them what Jesus looks like. And that's really what I want to really focus on this. And Jesus is the one that gives us the answer here. So the first question we're going to ask is who? Who is it that we ought to show Jesus to? And the first one, I'm just going to use the passage. It's the, it's the Greeks, the unsaved, as Jason was pointing out. Anyone you know that does not know Jesus Christ as their Savior? Can I point this out to you as clearly as I know how? Well, let me use this scripture. Go down to verse 32, I think it is. Let me show you in verse 32. Jesus is talking. He says, and I... If I be lifted up, what will he do? I will draw all men unto me. There are people in our lives who are just wanting to see that this Christianity that we claim, that this Savior that we, that we say that uh, has changed our lives, is worth their time and effort in getting to know. And the way that's going to happen is for you and I to lift up Jesus Christ. So there are unsaved people who just need for you and I to show them Jesus. There are people in our lives who are living in constant fear. And they need to, show, they need to be shown by us a God whose perfect love casteth out what? All fear. There are people in our lives who are hurting because of circumstances that have, that have taken place, because of things that have happened, uh, whether it's because someone has mistreated them or whether it's because life has just been difficult for them, they've gotten some bad news, their health issues, whatever, and they're hurting. And they need for you and I to show them the great physician, the healer. They need for you and I to lift up Christ in such a way that there's hope being given to them. There are people in our lives who's, who become bitter and angry. And, and, you know, they're like, you know them. They, they're like, they're seething right under the surface. You kind of tiptoe around them because, you know, you, you're afraid that at any moment they might explode. And you know what they need from us? They do not need for you and I to scold them about their bad attitude. They need for you and I to lift up Jesus Christ. To show them a God who can make a difference to a bitter heart. Can I point this out? What happens when people who are looking to us to see Jesus see us bitter and angry? What happens to people who are looking to us to see Jesus and they see us afraid? What happens when we are saying we have a Savior who can do all of these wonderful things and they're not seeing it happen in our lives? Sirs, 
we would see Jesus. That's what they're saying. And there are people in all of our lives that need desperately to know that, you know, there are lonely people. There are people, how about this one? I I, I wrote these down because I knew I'd forget some of them. There are people who are trapped in the lives that they built for themselves. It could be um, drugs, alcohol, pornography, whatever it might be that's kind of trapped them into their lives. The sin has gotten such a hold and they don't have any hope of being able to get out of this. And they're looking to the one person in their life that claims to know Jesus. And in their heart, they're saying, Sirs, we would see Jesus. Show me a God who is greater than my sin. And when what they are seeing in our lives is a God who is weak and anemic because we ourselves are bitter and angry and hurting and lonely and trapped in our own sin and we're not showing them the Savior. But Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. Same passage of scripture, Jesus says this. Jesus is going to give us the answer, the how-to of reaching out to these people. Do you know there are people in our church who are Christian people who are struggling to live the Christian life that we preach about, that we teach about in children's church and vacation Bible school and Sunday school, that we talk about publicly, that we stand up and give testimony about, and they're looking to us saying, show me how to live for Jesus. Sirs, we would see Jesus. The question is, when they look at us, are they seeing Jesus? Well, how do I make that happen? Well, Jesus answers the question. Go on. If you would, let's go back to what we just read. They come to Jesus, or in verse 22, Philip tells Andrew, and then Andrew and Philip go and tell Jesus. And Jesus says, here's how this works. If you want to show those people in your life a Savior who can make a difference in their life, here's how it looks. Take a look, if you would, please, at verse 24. Jesus says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. I struggled for years to figure out how this works. In my mind, a seed that is planted doesn't die. It comes to life, right? In my mind, uh, it, that, that was kind of like an oxymoron to me because if, I, if a seed dies, in my thinking, I plant a seed, and if it dies, that means it doesn't do anything. It just lays there in the dirt and kind of rots. But that's not what Jesus is trying to get across here. Here's the point that Jesus is making. The only way that that seed can bear fruit is for that seed to cease to exist. Do you see what happens? The seed dies. It opens up and roots come out and stalks come up and fruit begins to be formed on it. And where's the seed? It's gone. The only way for the seed to bring forth fruit is for the seed to to think so little of itself that it says, for the sake of fruit, I will surrender myself. And Jesus says, if you want to show people me, if other people are going to come to your life and to mine and say, Pastor John, I want to see Jesus in you, then it starts with me getting Pastor John out of the way. You understand? I must not, it can't be about me. It must be about him. Because if he is lifted up, he draws all men unto himself. And the only way my life is ever going to bring forth fruit is if I am willing to die. If I am willing to surrender. So that I cannot say any longer, I have rights. No. I cannot say any longer, this is what I want. Things must go the way I want them to be so that I can be happy. No, no. The seed enters the ground and must cease to exist or it can never bring forth fruit. 
And if you and I are going to bear fruit for the Lord, if we're going to lift up the Lord so that people can see the great God that we have and that we serve, we must be willing to present our lives a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is our reasonable service. And apart from that, that seed lies in the ground and does not. It stays a seed. It stays a seed. But it brings forth no fruit. For the fruit to come, the seed must die. You've got to put yourself aside. It's time when we go out shopping that we stop thinking, I wish this person would get out of my way. I'm going to run into them with my cart. <laughs> don't, don't look at me that way. You've had those thoughts. Right? It's time that we stop thinking that and think to ourselves, in this circumstance, how could I exemplify my Savior? In case someone is watching who might need to see Jesus today. The way we are going to have an impact on our families is to quit being one way at church and something totally different at home. Do you understand? As long as that's what we're doing, then our kids are going to, you know, kids are pretty quick. They catch up on this stuff really fast, mom and dad. They do. And they're going to see the hypocrisy, and they're going to think to themselves, if that's all that their God can do, I don't need him in my life. And we've watched parents who are faithful to church raise kids who do not want to give God the time of day. And one possibility, not that it's an absolute, because children are their own person. They have to make up their own mind. You understand? I, I'm, I know that they have their own will. But it's a possibility that the problem is that they see us being one thing at church and something totally different at home. And what they're not seeing is Jesus. And in their soul, they're screaming out, I just want someone to show me a God who is greater than this life. And Jesus said, and I, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto myself. Look at verse 25. Jesus goes on to show us how else we can exemplify and show forth the Savior. He says, he that loveth this life shall lose it. And he that hateth, hateth his life in this world shall keep it unto life eternal. To quit getting wrapped up, we live in this world that is so self focused look at all the advertisements that are trying to encourage you to look at yourself to constantly think about yourself to do what is important to you to do what makes you feel good and it's a constant we live in a society that's pushing us toward ourself 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 and that is not the character of our savior the character of our savior is not about me but about the other person that's why Jesus literally is lifted up from the earth in John chapter 3 and hang, hung upon a tree because he surrendered himself. He became obedient even to, unto death that you and I might have eternal life. And Jesus said, if you're going to keep living your life like you're the most important thing that there is, then people are going to struggle to see Jesus in you. The Greeks say, sirs, we would see Jesus. And Jesus says to his disciples, here's how it's done. Die. Be that seed that dies in the ground. Here's how it's done. Quit thinking about yourself all the time and think about other people. Love others more than yourself. This is what it, this is what it looks like to lift up the Savior. The question is, who is seeing Jesus in us? Who at school, teenager, is looking and saying, I don't know what's, what about them, but there's something unique and different. I see something in them that I don't see in anybody else. Because I see Jesus in them. You know, who, who would say about us, you know, I don't really know them that well, but this I know. They remind me of Jesus. Who would say that? It's an amazing thought. And yet this is what... Jesus is saying, if you want to do this, you must die to yourself. If you want to do this, you must quit loving yourself. Look at verse 26. If any man serve me, let him follow me. 
And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. Jesus takes them, it's, it's an amazing, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking at? Transition. When they say, Jesus, there's some Greek people here that want to see you. And Jesus says, let me talk to you about seeds and about loving yourself and about serving me. What? Huh? Jesus is teaching his disciples. Here is how they're going to see Jesus. Here is what it means for the, the world around us to see Jesus in us. It means dying to self. It means loving others more than yourself. And it means ultimately serving me, Jesus says. Get busy serving me. Get busy doing for me. Get busy obeying my word. If any man serve me and follow after me, him does the Father honor. So I want to lift the Lord up in my life. How do I do that, Pastor John? How do I get it to where other people can see what Jesus is doing in my life? Now, let me just make this very practical. Let's go to your job for a minute. Let's go to work with you. Can we just kind of walk into work tomorrow morning? It's Monday morning. We're all going to work at your place. And I'm asking, are the people at work seeing Jesus in you? Let's get to the nitty-gritty of where this happens. Where is it? When in my life am I supposed to go into the ground and die and cease to exist so that I might bear fruit? Well, one of those places is at work. The people at work, whether you realize it or not, are simply looking for somebody to show them Jesus. Everyone, everyone that has ever taken a breath understands what it means to need a Savior. What they don't understand is who that Savior is. And they're waiting for God's people to show them the Savior. So here we have this. So we've gone to work with you. Are we showing forth the Lord in the way we're dealing with our coworkers? Are we being honest in the things that we're doing? Or are we kind of encouraging them to lie on the time clock and et cetera, et cetera? Are we laughing at the wrong kinds of jokes and maybe telling the wrong kinds of jokes? Or are we showing them a Savior who is lifted up in our lives? Let's go to school for a minute, teenager, young person. Let's go to school, college age. Like no one else on the planet, young people are searching. That's what they're doing. And they're going to find something that gives them some sense of meaning and they'll latch onto it. And for some, that will be alcohol drugs, illicit relationships. Or they might meet someone who shows them a Savior that actually makes a difference. It's one thing to say I go to church. It's another thing to show forth Jesus Christ. Do we dare, can we go home with you this afternoon? And you, you know, take your shoes off and you're relaxed and you're just yourself. Does your wife, husband, does your wife see Jesus in you? When, when she spent too much money and the bills didn't quite make it? When she forgot to tell you that the sink downstairs was leaking and now it's all over the floor? Does she see Jesus in you at that moment? And all she is saying is, I just want him to show me Jesus. Ladies, where is the nag in Jesus? Is he seeing Jesus in you? Mom, dad? Teenagers, you might have a lost parent, a lost grandparent, and they're looking to see Jesus in you. What are you showing them? Except that corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, 
it can never bring forth fruit. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. And part of that fruit is the lifting up of Jesus Christ who brings, who draws all men into himself. Wow. Do we dare go one other place? Let's go play for a minute, can we? Let's go to the golf course. Or let's go to the soccer game or the basketball game. Let's stand up in the stands when the referee makes a really bad call against one of our kids. And let's ask this question. Do the people around us, do the people out on the field, see Jesus in us? Because while they may never say it on the outside, the real truth is in their hearts, their hearts are crying out, I just want someone to show me Jesus. Sirs, we would see Jesus. I just want to know that there's something that can get me out of this mess, that there's someone who is greater than the mess I've made for myself. And they're looking to the one who claims to know to show them. Except we die. Except we quit loving ourselves and instead love others. Except we serve and follow after him. They're not seeing Jesus. And I, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. The old song, you can probably sing it with me, and you're welcome to do so, you know, that uh, I saw Jesus in you. Think about the words, listen to it. As I enter heaven's glory, and I see my Savior's face, I will offer him 10,000 years of praise. Now, I want you to think, because someone was this person for you. For me, for me, it kind of sums up to three or four people. My dad would be one of them. My, my mom was one later in life, but not quite when I was accepting Christ as my Savior. My youth pastor and a man named Clarence Doyle who ran a camp down in southern Indiana. And lastly, the one guy who led me to Christ, David Dolan, who I only met once. He says this, Then I'll find that special one in whose life I saw God's Son. And with tears of joy and trembling lips these words I'll say, I saw Jesus in you. I saw Jesus in you. I could hear his voice in the words you said. I saw Jesus in you. In your eyes I saw his care. I could see his love was there. You were faithful and I saw Jesus in you. When we get to heaven, who's going to pull us aside and say, I just want you to know I'm here because... I saw Jesus in you. I'm here because you died and brought forth much fruit. I'm here because you lifted up Jesus Christ in your life and he drew me unto himself. Who will that be for you and I?